Just a reminder that we are having our church picnic still on the schedule. And if you've noticed, the uh, predictions for precipitation on Saturday are different for, depends on which forecast you look at. They, they go from 30% to 70%. So we don't know. We'll make a decision when we need to make a decision and we will let you know. A reminder too that you need to sign up for the email list. And that means that you can go to westhoustonbiblechurch.org and select About Our Church. And at the bottom of that menu, there is an option to subscribe to our email list. We send out various announcements about different things during the week. And so you can uh, uh, keep in the loop as to what is going on with the congregation. Uh, and that is, that is important. It is part of our procedure to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word. And that has been emphasized many ways in the series that we've been covering on what biblical worship is as we've been developing it through a study of the Old Testament. And even though the forms and um, ritual are different in the church age, basic underlying principles are are still the same. And so part of that is that even though we are saved, if we have trusted Christ as Savior, we are position our position is in Christ, our standing is in Christ, and that we have eternal life that cannot be taken from us if we believe in Christ as Savior. But we still sin. And so it is necessary to be cleansed of sin. A lot of different metaphors used in the New Testament that teach this. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are uh, prepared to study the Word. The biblical word, as we'll see in our study tonight, perhaps, is uh, sanctification or consecration, meaning to be spiritually set apart to the Lord for His service. So... We'll have a few moments of silent prayer at the beginning to give you the opportunity to make sure you are in right relationship with the Lord and spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a tremendous privilege that we have, that you are a God who has condescended to send his son to die on the cross for our sins, that you have entered into human history through the second person of the Trinity to, uh, in order to provide redemption and to bring us to yourself. Father, we're thankful that this is a plan that is not based on who we are or what we do. It's based on who you are. And we need to understand more fully who you are and your plan, who our Lord Jesus Christ is, all of his work of redemption for us and the Holy Spirit. Father, because this then helps us to understand your greatness, your magnificence, your majesty, your splendor, and how extraordinary it is that you desire a relationship with us and have done so much to secure that. And that is the essence, the foundation of worship. And as we study more tonight about worship, help us to understand its significance in our lives and that we need to um, Think about that as part of our, uh, our week, as part of our daily life, that we are to worship you. You are to be the center of, of our thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are studying worship as part of a sub-series in our ongoing series on First and Second Samuel. And as such, it is important because there's so much confusion about worship today, and truly worship has been so 
diluted in modern evangelical uh, evangelicalism that that it has diminished the understanding of who God is. It's diminished and diluted our understanding of salvation and the Christian life. And that impacts how we think about our purpose in life. Uh, this this is one of the ways in which Satan has truly attacked the American church and destroyed its its a real power because the bottom line is that the Christians in America are becoming less and less biblically literate. They are no longer theologically knowledgeable. That doesn't mean everybody. This is the trend. And as a result, they are just spiritually impoverished. And they really don't understand what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ or to worship God or to have a life that is focused on a different and a higher plane. Our worship of God at its very center, as I pointed out the last few weeks, has to focus on just who God is. That's why that that illustration that I often put up on the board of the essence box is so important, because this is our view of ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is a holy triune God who is a creator God of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And when we unpack that, and I could talk from now until five decades from now nonstop, and we wouldn't even do more than scratch the surface because God is infinite. His, he's all-powerful. Those all words, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, are beyond our, our vaguest notion in terms of comprehension. And yet we can know certain things and understand things, and God expects us to probe those things. And we know some things about God because God is a God of knowledge, and he has created the heavens and the earth and everything. And then I think about what that means. That means that goes all the way down to the tiniest sub atomic sub-molecular particle and, and below that, all the way up to the uh, expanse of the heavens, all of the macro systems that we can think of in terms of the galaxies, in terms of the universe. And even when God makes certain promises in, in the Scripture that relate to the earth, for example, in the Noahic Covenant, God makes certain promises about the fact that he will never again destroy the earth by water. To be able to make that promise means he has to be in complete control of every aspect of meteorology. But the meteorology of the earth is not simply affected by systems on the earth. It's also affected by things that are going on in in the solar system and in the universe. So, even though these covenants relate to what God's going to do on the earth, and we have prophecies related to things that do specifically involve the solar system that will come true in the, in the uh, tribulation period, that means that God has to be able to control all of these processes. If it was purely random, then, then we might be like a lot of people today and get all upset and skittish and upset about the fact that some asteroid might hit the earth. We do know from Revelation that something like that will happen during the tribulation period, but it won't happen until then, that nobody's going to stop God's plan and purpose for the human race. All of this means that we worship a rational God. And it is that idea that comes out of out of the Old Testament, that the God that we worship is a knowledgeable, rational God, that transformed Western civilization along with a number of other uh, other things. And I made the comment in talking about this last week because that's related to worship. It's our comprehension of God. And as a as a aside, I mentioned a statement. I said, um, here's my claim, put it up here, that universities begin 
in the early Middle Ages in the West, they were not the product of Buddhism, Hinduism, or Islam. They did not develop universities. And so I got a question on that. It's not what's, what's being taught today. And it's, and, and I think for a couple of different reasons. One of which is, is that has to do with what do we mean by a university? University is a term that did not come into use until Western civilization, and it defined a specific kind of education. And so the way we use it today is as a synonym for higher education, and it's not, actually. Um, it's it, it, something more than just higher education has been around in many different cultures in many different places uh, since, uh, you know, uh, two or three thousand BC, there have been people pursuing a greater level of knowledge. But what happened in the West was due to unique features, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, th- this developed something called the university. And so to call things that were present in perhaps China or India or even in Greece or Rome, a university is something of an anachronism. It's where, that may not be the right word, but it is where we're taking a modern concept and reading it back in to an ancient situation without necessarily fully understanding that. So I make the point here that the basis for making this claim is because Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and we can add Greco-Roman cultures did not develop universities because their metaphysical beliefs, that is, their belief about ultimate reality and the gods that they worship or the lack of gods that they worship, prevented the development of an epistemology that would have produced a university in the way it's developed in the West. See, with you don't have a personal, infinite God who is omniscient and creates every detail in the universe so that everything logically fits together, then you don't have a basis for investigating and understanding everything in the universe. That's the basic claim. But there have been many others that made this claim. And one of the reasons I'm going through this is because, as the person who questioned me said, uh, there are times when I make statements, other pastors make statements, that need to be backed up a little bit more academically because we I know I do and I know others do as well have a lot of college university students have others who are pursuing academic degrees and they hear a statement like that and then perhaps not knowing how to research it or back it up and if you go into a secular campus which due to multiculturalism has tried to level the playing field and argue that all these cultures have produced universities and, and, and they're, they're playing games with, with words and word definitions. So one of the books that, um, I recommend, I'm going to have to read this guy's name out and spell it because otherwise the, um, uh, people who do the transcribing will get absolutely lost and I'll get a lot of, a lot of nasty emails. Um, but this is, in fact, did I miss the page? No, there it is. Okay, this is the VM here on these quotes refers to Vishal Mangalwadi. Okay, y'all got that? Vishal Mangalwadi. His first name is spelled V as in Victor, V-I-S-H-A-L, and his last name is spelled M-A-N-G-A-L-W-A-D-I, Mangalwadi. He is Indian. He it was stated in Christianity Today to be the uh, uh, foremost Christian intellectual in India. He served in the Indian Parliament. He was educated in Hindu ashrams and in secular universities. And he has written a book called The Book That Made Your World, How the Bible Created the Soul of Western Civilization. And it is a an excellent book to understand that. There are others that have written on a similar theme. One is, um, and I didn't get this, this one written down. One is a book by Schmidt. 
I'll have to look, I'll put it we'll put it on the on the website uh, and it has the same theme it is it is how Christianity changed the world and then there's another book by Rodney Stark how the west won the neglected story of the triumph of modernity which came out in 2014 uh Mangawati's book came out in 2011 the other book came out around 2006 or 2007 these are it's by Schmidt called how christianity changed the world so these are uh scholarly works with huge number of footnotes going to many other more advanced technical studies which teach these same principles and make these same kinds of statements. Um, so, Mandawadi says, Why did my university in Allahabad have a church but not a mosque or a Hindu temple? His answer is because the university was invented and established by Christians. Charles Haskins, who was a professor at Harvard, the early part of the 20th century, wrote a classic work on the origin of the university, came out in 1923, and he said, universities like cathedrals and parliaments are a product of the Middle Ages. The Greeks and the Romans, uh, strange as it may seem, had no universities in the sense in which the word has been used for the past seven or eight centuries. They had higher education, but the terms are not synonymous. Much of their instruction in law, rhetoric, and philosophy would be hard to surpass, but it was not organized into the form of permanent institutions of learning. So that's one of the features that distinguishes the Greco-Roman advanced learning or uh, Far Eastern advanced learning was the way in which it is organized and uh, the establishment of a a long-term permanent institution. Um, But there's more to it than simply that. Mangawati makes the statement that education was specifically a Christian missionary enterprise. Remember, he's coming from India. His whole background is Hinduism, Buddhism, and what's going on in India. He says, astute observation, merchants and military were not concerned with establishing education. When the British Army went out into the world, they took missionaries with them. The, the merchants... And the, and the military were not concerned with education, but the Christians were. They wanted to establish schools. They wanted to uh, reduce the language into a written language if there was not one. And um, so modern education is a fruit of the Bible because they want people to read the Word of God. That doesn't mean other people were not educated, but that that specifically drove Christianity in a distinctive way. Um, Mandawati states that uh, the annual physical, uh, the annual festivals, rather, at the Hindu shrines, quote, drew every important Hindu religious, political, economic, and intellectual leader to uh, this confluence in the last two millennia. The money pilgrims donated is incalculable. Yet the Hindu, Buddhist, and Muslim civilizations did not establish a single significant institution of learning in this center of uh, Gangetic, that is the river, refers to the river Ganges, Gangetic civilization. So why is it? And, And the thesis is that this is because of their ultimate worldview, that, that their view of, of, uh, what is ultimate in reality, their metaphysic. He makes the statement that uh, where he went to university was at Allahabad. He said some holy men near Allahabad's uh, confluence were at least as brilliant and dedicated. See, you're, we're not making statements that they weren't smart, they weren't brilliant, they didn't make incredible inventions. It's that they never that never got developed or went anywhere because the worldview prevented it. It's like trying to, 
you know, plant a rose bush out in the desert where there's no water. It's nothing's going to happen. Uh, so that's the idea. He says they were at least as brilliant as the friars who founded Oxford and Cambridge. They failed to establish a university because of their religious quest to kill their mind. See, in Buddhism, it's you, you want to do away with your mind. You want to empty your mind. You want to vacate it because ultimate reality is nothingness. And so if you want to reach your highest level, then you have to empty your mind. It's anti-intellectual. Its core is mysticism, and all mysticism is ultimately anti-intellectual. So he says they failed to establish a university because of their religious quest to, quote, kill, unquote, their minds. They lay on nails, buried themselves, or sat covered only with ashes and cow dung, smoking drugs and seeking enlightenment. I think I have this quote here. Yeah, there. Uh, about the a little more than halfway down. Seeking enlightenment. Their path to enlightenment was, I don't know how to pronounce this correctly, Janana Marg, the path of knowledge of self, God, or the oneness of everything. Yet they had no interest in the material world, for they thought it was Maya or illusion. See, why do you develop, would develop science if everything you see in the physical world is just illusion? There's no foundation there for developing any kind of, of real scientific thought culturally. There were exceptions. There were, they, there were inventions that were made. There were developments that were made. But again, they didn't go anywhere. This is not too much different from Plato's idealism. If you've ever studied philosophy, then one of the great images is Plato's cave coming out of his discussion in the Republic. And there he talks about knowledge and how we see reality. Remember, in, in, in Plato's thought, ultimate reality is in the realm of the ideal, the ideas. It's not in physical material world, which is somehow tainted. And so he uses the illustration of a man in a cave. And a man in a cave is looking, looking at, a, at a wall, and there's a light somewhere behind him, and what he sees are shadow figures on the wall. You remember when you were a kid and you'd get a turn off all the lights in your bedroom and shine a light up against the wall, and you'd get your fingers and you'd make shadow fingers a dog or a rabbit or whatever. Well, for Plato, that's all we see. We never see the, the rabbit or the dog or the cow. All we see is the shadow on the wall. So we never see things as they are. We only see this, this shadow, this, this, this reflection. So since we can't ever see reality as it is, then that doesn't stimulate us to investigate things as they are. So for one thing, natural science the study of, of creation and developing the laws of science has no, has no way to uh, establish any roots in that, uh, in that kind of a, of a soil. Now, the, in the Far East, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, inventions. The Chinese invented a uh, movable uh, type printer somewhere around 1000 A.D., uh, the movable type metal, metal printer was invented in Korea in uh, 1345, and they printed an enormous number of, of, of books, uh, most of which were religious books, and they were collected into enormous uh, libraries. In fact, uh, Mangalwadi talks about this and talks about how uh, these libraries in India and China were uh, were so large they had to cre create and invented mechanical rotating bookcases by by the ninth century A.D. Mechanical rotating bookcases, and according to one monk at Sushao, they had invented a brake to stop the rotation, and he says that. Uh, and another scholar, Lynn White, who is an, a scholar on in these areas. Uh, makes a statement that they didn't turn these, rotate these bookcases for research. They rotated them continuously 24-7 because they would meditate on the sound. Because that's how you emptied your mind in meditation. 
Meditation, Mangawati says, is a means of escaping thinking by focusing attention on a sacred or meaningless sound like Om. Thinking must be stopped and the mind must be silenced because the root of existence is not Lagos, the rational word, but Avidya, ignorance. The belief is best summed up in the Buddhist doctrine of creation summarized in Padakasamapada, or chain of dependent origination. And so he goes on and establishes this, but Schmidt, in his work, How Christianity Changed the World, states, after reciting the numerous philosophers, poets, advanced thinkers, and learned men of the Greco-Roman heritage, he identified them as contributing to a much higher level of education, but that it did not develop into permanent institutions or what came to be known as universities. He said they had no libraries, they had no guild of scholars or students, and they certified no one. Even more important, it can be argued, they tested no theories and engaged in no research. In fact, they ignored and even spurned the inductive method. The best evidence indicates the universities grew out of the Christian monasteries. Now, that points out another thing. They, there is a presence in the Far East of libraries. They were researching what the religious traditions were. They weren't going into the libraries to study and research to develop new ideas. There's no innovation. It's just what is the passing on the heritage because in, in, in this gets into a whole other area that, that I'm not going to talk about too much, but in both Greco, Greco-Roman thought and in Hindu thought and Buddhist thought, life is cyclical. There's no History isn't moving anywhere. The fact that history is starting here and moving and progressing to an ultimate finishing point is a Judeo-Christian idea. Pagan cultures just have this ongoing cycle all the time. And so there's no reason to try to innovate and break the cycle because you can't, so why try? Um, this whole idea of, uh, of a linear view of, of history is also foundational to our understanding of knowledge. We're moving somewhere. We are progressing in knowledge. There's a reason and purpose to learn more, to study more, and to advance uh, to advance our studies. In the Middle Ages, this began with, uh, in some sense, with the Benedictine uh, monks. A part of the Benedictine vow was that the Benedictine monks were to, required to read books daily, not just scripture, not just theology, but everything. They read Latin classics from Rome. They read Greek classics and they studied logic and these other things that they would take and apply. And as a result, they began to develop uh, new ideas. Um, one of the features that developed I mean, just the history of ideas, some people think that the first, uh, it's really a proto-university, it hadn't come together yet, it's too early, was the emperor of the Eastern Empire, Theodosius II, in the year 425, had a law school, had 31 professors who taught Latin, Greek, and philosophy. 31 professors. There's a specific curriculum that ended or culminated in a uh, degree or certification or something of that nature. You had a starting point and an ending point. That becomes a major feature in the Western idea of a university. Uh, the first clear universities uh, begun in, uh, at the University of Bologna in 1158, which spe- uh, specialized in the study of canon law. And then the University of Paris in 1200, uh, where Abelard, later Thomas Aquinas, w- were studied and taught. And it specialized in theology and then added medicine in 1270. Now, it's interesting because neither Islam nor Buddhism did empirical studies, for example, on the body. Now, Aristotle wrote a lot about the circulatory system and the organs in the body, but he never 
actually cut up open a corpse because they just didn't do that. They just came up with their theories, and that was good enough. They didn't go out and do have practical empiricism. That comes along because Christians believe there's a distinction between the body and the soul, and the soul leaves at death. And so now that means that the body is no longer significant, and we can cut it open and study and learn for the prevention of disease and other things as we go along. So... Uh, other things that that uh, that developed out of this um, was the, was as I pointed out earlier uh, innovation that was important. You had the idea of of research. You had the idea also um, in the work by um, Stark, Rodney Stark. He points out that there's no theology done until you have Christians because theology is where you're taking principles of reason and logic and you're applying them to revelation in order to understand things. Moving from what the scripture says to a definition of the Trinity at the Nicene uh, Conference in 325 is doing theology. Other traditions don't do that. They don't, they stick with what the received, uh, what the received knowledge is. So these are just some of the ideas. There's a whole lot more that is said about this, but you can research this in any number of these books that I've mentioned and a number of others that, uh, that come along and, and focus our attention on this is that what makes Western civilization unique is it's grounded on this Judeo-Christian concept of a rational God who has created everything. Now, one of the implications of that is if you're in a polytheistic culture, Hinduism, Buddhism, well, technically some people argue Buddhism is ultimately nothingness, so it's not really polytheistic, but that's another debate. If you're in these systems where you have a couple of dozen or hundreds of different gods and goddesses, and you have one god or goddess that controls the river, and another one that controls the ocean, another one that controls the rain and the thunder and the lightning and fertility and uh, prosperity and all these other things, if those are controlled by these whimsical deities, then you can't figure out any kind of standards. You can't figure out any kinds of laws or uh, things that are universal because you don't believe that there are universal. It's all done by the whimsy of these gods and goddesses. And so it isn't really until this is removed from the thinking to recognize that everything's created orderly by a rational, logical God that you can develop a systematic, coherent view of creation. That's why in polytheistic cultures, as we've studied with Ephesus on Sunday morning, there was such a popularity of magic because you can't know what the creation is like. You just have to believe in superstition and magic in order to somehow manipulate the gods and goddesses uh, to do what you uh, want them to do. And as Mandawati concludes, it's not that Chinese monks and Hindu sages lacked ability, they lacked philosophical motivation. They looked for a psychological paradise um, for blessing within their consciousness. Until the 16th century, the Western Christian mind also looked for a psychological or spiritual salvation. It's only when a major portion of Christendom could read the Bible and take it at face value that it began to understand the loss of Eden as a loss of an earthly paradise. It's got to be that re complete rejection of Platonism and idealism. And then uh, in the diagrams and verbiage of, of uh, Francis Schaeffer, where you now uh, give equal weight to nature as well as to grace. So that probably gives most of you more information than you want, but somebody out there is going to listen to this and understand, you know, there's a, real, there's a reason that we have the, the institutions that we have in, in Western civilization. So with that, we're going to shift gears, and we're going to go to... Uh, our main 
topic tonight, which is has to do with the ta- uh, wait a minute, that's not going to be right. Uh, here we go. Our study of worship. And tonight we're going to continue what we've been studying in Exodus, what we looked at the last couple of, of weeks. And tonight we're looking at why God called Israel as a kingdom of priests. This is distinct. It has never happened before. This is why this begins a new dispensation, This is the dispensation of the law. And one of the features of the dispensation of the law is that Israel now has a unique position as a nation. Before this, it was a distinct race called out by God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now they are to be a, have a new purpose. They will have a land. In order to have a nation, you need to have three things. You need to have a people. You need to have a territory or land, and you have to have a constitution. You have to have law. And so the people have been growing for the last 400 years. The land has been sitting there as those who are living there have become more and more perverted and reprobate until now they are ripe for judgment, and God is going to take their uh, traditional land away from them, and then he is going to... um, give it to Israel. And so after delivering them from slavery in Egypt, he's going to lead them to Mount Sinai where he is going to give them the law, uh, the Mosaic law, which is, you know, there are those who come along and say, well, they had law before this. Sure, they had law before this. You have Hammurabi's law code and other other things. And because this reflected the basic uh ethics that God had revealed earlier in creation, sort of a creation code, uh, they mirror some of the same realities, but they're distinctives in the way the law of Moses worked. But our focus isn't on that. Our focus is on understanding worship, that worship is a response to God's revelation. So what does that mean? Worship is a response to God's revelation. That means that if we're going to worship that is a response, or it must be preceded by the proclamation of God's word. Now, that can happen a lot of different ways. In the Old Testament, it could be it could happen as a result of special revelation and a prophet proclaiming something. It could happen just simply through the reading of Scripture. And there are times when people read Scripture, for example, when Josiah uh, when Hilkiah the high priest rediscovered the, Mo- the uh, Mosaic law, the Torah, in the temple, it had been hidden away and everybody had forgotten about it. When um, Josiah read it, uh, he immediately put it into effect. He, he repented, that is, he turned toward God, and he implemented all of the uh, ritual and everything that was required. He had the temple completely cleansed because by this time they were storing or putting all kinds of idols into the temple and had basically uh, turned it into a, a very idolatrous, perverted place. And so he cleanses the temple, he cleanses the priesthood, and he restores biblical worship, uh, the worship described in Torah as a result of the reading of God's Word. Today, we have the proclamation of God's Word from pulpits. We have proclamation of God's Word in written works. And as we read these written works, we are moved to respond to God in worship. That is what worship is. It is The Word is being used today. One of the ways Satan attacks the church is to pervert the meaning of good biblical words. Uh, We lost the word holy uh, back with the holiness movement in the mid-19th century and the Pentecostal movement perverted the word holy. We've lost uh, other words along the way, and now we are losing worship because we have two generations now that have grown up thinking that the worship leader is the song leader and that worship is music. Worship leader is the pastor, 
And worship involves everything that goes on in a service, the giving, uh, the uh, reading of Scripture, the proclamation of the Word, and singing is one of the ways we respond to that proclamation. So let's turn to Exodus chapter 19, and we'll start there, and we're going to draw a contrast between what happens in Exodus 19 and what will happen in Exodus chapter 24. In both scenarios, although Exodus 19 isn't technically a worship service, it sets the stage. Exodus 19.1, we have a um, God reminding them of who he, who he is that he, in all of the gracious acts that he has done for them. And uh, so we're told in the introduction here that in the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. Notice this locks it down in a specific location and a specific place the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim. You can go to these locations today, uh, although there's different options for the mountain of Sinai. We know where the wilderness of Sinai is, or the wilderness of Sin, S-I-N. It's not the wilderness of Sin. Um, They come to Rephidim and to the wilderness of Sinai. They camped in the wilderness, and so Israel camped there before the mountain. That's the setting. And then we have, as it were, a call to worship. And God calls to Moses. And Moses goes up to the mountain. And so this is like we talk about a call to worship God, and he will worship God there. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the children of Israel, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So what's going on here? When we think about the things we've observed as part of worship, part of worship is you have a call to worship. You also have a proclamation. This is God making a proclamation. In this proclamation, he reminds them of who he is and the gracious acts that he has done for them. He has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And then he's going to charge them to obey him. And we've seen that in the Mosaic Law, as well as what Jesus lays down and teaches in John 14 and 15, that if we love him, if we love God, we obey him. In Deuteronomy, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself. It summarizes all of the law. We obey the law uh, in the Old Testament. So we see that in um, uh, let me back that up. In verse 4, reminds them of his grace in bringing them out of Egypt. And this is a map of the Sinai Peninsula. Israel is up here to the sort of top right. Over here, it is the, uh, you have these two forks of the Red Sea, the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. Coming down between them is the Sinai Peninsula. The traditional location is Jebel Musa, which is located down here at the tip, the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. But there are problems. I'm not going to get into all of that. And there are other suggested locations uh, for Sinai uh, on the traditional location map. Here's the location for Rephidim. And this is the three-month route that the Israelites followed to get down to uh, Mount Sinai. Now, God lays down this charge to them in verse 5. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, so that's the condition. Are you willing to make a commitment to obey my voice and keep my covenant? Now, are they already God's chosen covenant people? Yeah. And that came with the Abrahamic covenant. So he asks this question, If you will do this, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be 
a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Now, this is a calling for Israel now as a nation to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, who called upon the name of the Lord. When he goes to Haran from Ur of the Chaldees, he called on the name of the Lord. He called on the name of the Lord when he comes down into the land at Shechem and at Beersheba. And we saw that that meant that he was making proclamation about who God is and what God had done. And remember, we went to Exodus uh, 24 and 25, that God himself says, I will, I will call upon the name of the Lord. And God's not going to, that's not prayer. God is going to be talking about who he is and what he's done, and he goes immediately into doing that. And so this call for Israel to be a kingdom of priests was to follow in the footsteps of Abraham, the patriarch, and to proclaim who God is and what he has done. They are to be witnesses to the world of God and his grace. This is part of worship. Uh, Second, they are to be what the priests were to be as teachers of the nations. So in Israel, you had the 12 tribes. You had one tribe that is set apart and distinct, uh, separated to God to serve as priests, the tribe of Levi. And we need to look and understand at what the tribe of Levi did. And this is laid out in Deuteronomy 33.10. I've just broken it down. All the words come right out of Deuteronomy 33. Referring to the responsibilities of the Levites, God said, they shall teach Jacob your judgments, or Moses is writing, talking to God. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. Jacob and Israel are synonyms for the 12 tribes, for the nation Israel. So the priests were to teach the judgments and the law to the people. They were supposed to be the educators of the nation on the law. Second, they were to put incense before you. They're going to serve in the temple, and part of what they would do is to bring incense into the holy place, and they would put the incense on the altar of incense, and as the incense burned and the smoke went up, it was a picture of uh, intercessory prayer, that our prayers are to continually go up before the Lord. There's a picture of this in terms of the heavenly sanctuary in Revelation 8.3. Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. This is the altar in heaven before the throne of God. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. One thing we should remember when we're talking about the tabernacle or the temple is that there's a heavenly prototype and that God revealed the pattern to Moses and he reveals the pattern for the temple to David so that when Solomon builds a temple and expands it and develops some of the features in it, he's not just making that up as he goes along. It was revealed to David so that he is following that heavenly uh, prototype, that heavenly pattern uh, that exists uh, in heaven. And that's alluded to several times, not only in Revelation, but also in the book of Hebrews. So they are to teach Jacob their judgments and the law. They're to put incense before God. They're to pray continuously, leading the nation in prayer, and a whole burnt sacrifice on the altar. Now, the reason for the burnt offering was that it is a picture of of um, complete dedication to God, that they are dedicated to God because in the burnt offering, everything went up in smoke to God, and it is a picture of surrender to God, to totally dedicating yourself to God, and that everything you have uh, belongs to God. It is a a picture of obedience. It was one of the offerings that you always brought when you came to the temple. Now think about that. Every time you go to the temple, you go for the feast days, three times a year required to do that. You had to bring a a bullock or you had to bring a sheep or for the poor, you had to bring uh, a bird offering for the burnt offering. 
but you also had to always bring a second offering, and that's the peace offering. And if you had done anything to render yourself ritually unclean in the last year, then you had to bring a trespass offering. So it's not uh, you you don't get away with the freebie going to the temple. It is going to cost you a lot in order to go to the temple. So they do these three things. They uh, teach, they pray, and they offer the offerings, the burnt sacrifice that is on the altar. So Moses comes down and uh, Moses goes to the people and calls the elders together and lays all this out before the Lord, but, uh, that the Lord had told them. And he's got to emphasize this because what he basically is telling them that if you're going to be a nation of priests, then you have to be set apart to the Lord as a nation. That means you are going to be a holy nation. And you can't serve the Lord without being holy. So something has to happen that sanctifies us or sets us apart to the service of God. This is what will happen in Exodus 19, and then we'll see it fulfilled in Exodus chapter uh, chapter 24. So in verse 9, The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. See, what God is saying, I'm going to come. The manifestation here is in a thick cloud. I want you to pay attention to the visuals, the audio visuals that are taking place here. God is going to appear in a thick cloud He will speak in such a way that the people can hear him. This is going to play out for generations. God is beginning something new. He's going to have this dramatic entry. If you were there with a video camera, you could have recorded the whole thing, including the voice of God, and nobody would debate the existence of God anymore. So Moses is telling the people about this, and God tells them that he they he is to go to the people and to uh, sanctify them, to consecrate them. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. So there's going to be three days of cleansing. Interesting. Now, the word consecrate comes from, is a translation of the Hebrew verb kadash. Now, kadash is usually translated holy, sanctify, make holy, all these different terms. The English word consecrate, think about the uh, third syllable there, S-C-S-E-C-R-A-T-E. That is from the Latin word sacra, meaning holy. Okay, so consecrate is just the Latin translation of the Hebrew word kadash, meaning to make, uh, to set apart something for the use of God. It doesn't mean it's morally perfect or morally pure. It doesn't mean it's otherworldly, but it does mean that it is set apart and distinct uh, for the service of God. So the people have to be consecrated before they can come before God. This is the same thing that Jesus is teaching. See, they have to wash their clothes. That's the ritual cleansing. They've been traveling in the wilderness. They've got to clean everything. They've got to clean themselves, uh, go through the, the ritual purity, all of that, so that they can come before God. They have to prepare themselves uh, spiritually. This is the starting point of worship. This is what Jesus is teaching the disciples when he is washing their feet in the upper room. And he tells them that some of you are completely clean. That is, they are saved. They have positional uh, righteousness. But, uh, but he says, but not all of you, because there was one who wasn't saved, and that was Judas. And then Jesus says that I need to wash your feet and wash your hands, because even though you are positionally cleansed, you still go through life in sin, You do things that are wrong, so you wash your hands. You go places that are wrong, so you wash your feet. That's what the symbolism is. And so they have to be ready and prepared uh, for the third day. Um, The people have 
uh, responded to God. Let me back up a minute to this slide. When when Moses calls the elders together and tells them what, what uh, God commanded them in verse 8, then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. See, they've made a commitment. God, we will agree to this, he said at the beginning, a condition. If you will uh, listen to me and obey me, then I will make you my people. And they said, this is a great deal. Uh, We agree to this. It's a contractual relationship called a covenant. And so they said, all that the Lord has done, uh, we will do. This is a starting point of worship that is then developed through the need to be set apart corporately to God. And God uh, appears to them in this thick cloud in verse uh, 9. And so they have this visual effect that takes place. They see the presence of God and they hear the sounds and are thus convinced that the covenant does indeed come from God, from a supernatural being who has actually entered into space and time. See, in the, in the imagery here, we have to keep this, this straightened out. The Passover, where you have the death of the lamb, And the blood applied to the household is a picture of redemption. Then you have the crossing, the freedom that occurs uh, when they cross the Red Sea, God's deliverance there. And then now you come to the law and the issue is how is a redeemed people going to live before God? There is a distinction between justification and redemption and sanctification or the spiritual life. The Passover and the Red Sea picture redemption, The what happens here at Sinai in chapter 19 and 24 pictures their positional sanctification. They're going to be positionally set apart to God. So they need to be consecrated. They need to be cleansed and, um, and set apart to God. Now, what is the opposite of holy? Is it impure? Is it sin? No, the opposite of holy is common, profane, something that is used for everyday tasks. For example, if you go into a Jewish household during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they have a specific set of dishes they only use for that. They are set apart. They are holy. Now, that's not a dish cannot be morally pure. The dishes, the furniture, and the temple, that can't be, or the tabernacle can't be morally pure. It has no more morality to it. It has no ethics. It is set apart to the service of God. And the incense that is burned is a special incense with a special recipe that is holy. It is set apart for the service of God. This is the problem with, with, uh, Nadab and Abihu is they go off and buy some, what they think is some, we got some great smelling incense over here from these Bedouins who just went by. And so we bought some of that. So let's, let's burn that in the, in the, uh, tabernacle. And so when they burn this strange fire, that's what, what it's called. It's just, it's just in, profane, in common, everyday incense. God said, no, this is my dwelling place. You will not bring everyday things here. Now, here's a principle for worship. When we come together as worship, this is still true. What happens in worship, what happens when the church comes together in worship is not to be like what goes on anywhere else in life. The music is going to be different because it has been thought through to reflect in both the music and the words the essence, the person, the glory of God, and to bring our attention on him and away from ourselves. Everything that we do, you know, and today we have so... We've lowered everything to the lowest common denominator that people come into church dressed in shorts and dressed in T-shirts and dressed rather sloppily sometimes. And the question is, if you had an audience with Queen Elizabeth II, how would you dress? What would you think about before you went into her presence? 
Would you think about what you are going to say and how you are going to say it? Would you dress appropriately? Now, you might not have, you know, uh, thousands of dollars to spend on an expensive wardrobe, but you wouldn't just go in and dress like you're going on a tour of Israel. Those of you who've been know that Israel is extremely casual and we, we pretty much dress down as much as we can. That's not appropriate for worship. Why? It goes back to this principle that worship is something totally and radically different from everything else in life. It is sacred in that sense. That means it's set apart, time that is set apart to focus on God. And so they have to be consecrated. And they are. this is the positional consecration of the nation. So they're going to be ready on the third day. In verse 12, uh, God warns Moses. He said, you shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. See, that is really holy ground. When, when God told, told Moses, when God appears in the burning bush, Moses approaches, what does God say? Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. We've moved a little beyond that. It's not just taking off your shoes. It's, now it's washing all of your clothes and being spiritually prepared uh, in order to come and worship God. And there was a lot more that was involved in this. They can't touch the mountain or there's an instant death penalty. Verse 13, not a hand shall touch him, but he see, he's unclean now. He, he's defiled the sanctuary if he touches the mountain. So he has to be shot with an arrow or you throw stones at him, but you don't touch him or you'll be defiled. So not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And verse 14, so Moses went down and from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people and they washed their clothes. And see, there it translates sanctified, but it's the exact same form, the same word in Hebrew that you had earlier that's translated consecrated. It means to be set apart to the service of God. And he said, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. See, they were, and this is, is going to show up in the Mosaic Law too. You are not supposed to have uh, any sort of intimate relations before you go worship. Why? It's a distraction. You have to be prepared for worship. It's not something you do at the last minute and say, oh, let's go to church. No, the biblical way to do this is you start thinking about this maybe the night before. You wake up in the morning. Today is a day that we focus on the Lord. And you take time to read, maybe as a family to pray together, uh, read the scriptures, and to prepare yourself because you're going to go to worship. It's not some last-minute detail that we're just sort of plugging into our day, but something we are thinking about because it is spiritually uh, significant. So in verse 16, we read, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightning. See, this is the audio part. There, they, they, there's thundering. They, the visual is they see the lightning, and they see this thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, and so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Now Mount Sinai is completely covered in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. So you see all of this is going on. And he, it, smoke ascends like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So there's an earthquake. You know, God is, is, is get, giving them sensory overload here in terms of his presence so that they won't ever forget this. They do forget it because of that's the way we are as fallen sinners. Moses reminds the next generation of this in Deuteronomy, and he says, The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments. So literally, it's the Ten Words. 
Now, that's important because in a minute we're going to see just that phrase word show up, and it's talking about those those commandments, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And so, verse 19, And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and, and Moses goes up. And this is when he is going to give Moses the Ten Commandments. Now, something happens. We're already out of time. We'll have to come back to this next time. But this is the contrast. God is going to give them the law, and then they are going to uh, gather around the mountain again. And when they do, they are going to see God or a part of his throne room. In Exodus 24.10, we read, I don't have it up there. 24.10, we read, And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. Did they see that before? What did they see before? Everything shrouded in clouds, thick clouds, all this lightning and thundering. But now it's a clear blue day. Why? Because they've been sanctified. They are now positional. It is a shift. They have moved from being the unconsecrated, unsanctified people. They've been given the law, and now they're positionally sanctified and consecrated as a nation. And so there's going to be a... a true worship and celebration here. The sacrifices that are mentioned here are only the first two that I mentioned. Uh, there's a, the sacrifice of the burnt offering, our total complete dedication to God. And number two, the fellowship. We have peace with God. So they're going to eat a meal celebrating, which indicates that, that we now have peace with God and our sins are forgiven. But there's no trespass or sin offering because they are now a sanctified, consecrated people. Great pattern for us to understand in terms of how this relates to the breakdown and understanding of the Christian life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to get together this evening and to read your word, to trust in what you have given us, and to see the remarkable impact that your word has and has had through the generations and the response that we should have, not taking this lightly, but realizing how significant this is, how profoundly life-changing it is to have the words of the living God in our hands and to, to take this with the significance that is intended. And that this is, this is not something that is just ordinary or everyday, but something that is profoundly different. And as a result of that, it should shape our lives. And we pray that we would come to understand this more clearly and that God the Holy Spirit would use it as he experientially sanctifies us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.